Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we travel from Hong Kong in the 60s to modern-day Miami for two heartbreaking stories of repressed passion and unrequited love, each told with their own formal and structural audacity. Tasha, perhaps you can talk about the pairings in our pairing. Currently standing at 99% on Metacritic and 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight is, quantitatively speaking, the most acclaimed film of 2016 so far. It's also been one of the year's biggest indie sensations, in part because of the strong reviews, but also perhaps because it tells the story of unrequited love that we're not used to seeing in contemporary America. Unfolding in three distinct chapters, Moonlight shows three phases in the life of a bullied black Miami resident named Chiron, who lives in poverty with his drug addiction. Mother Paula. Sharon has been quote unquote different from his peers since pre adolescence, and the film is about his struggle to identify and pursue his desires in an environment that strongly forbids homosexuality. The romantic qualities of Moonlight, from Sharon's tormented relationship with a classmate to the dreamy musical themes that connect them, call to mind the work of Wong Kar Wai, particularly his beautiful 2000 film, In the Mood for Love. Opening in 1962 Hong Kong, In the Mood for Love stars Tony Long and Maggie Chung as neighbors who discover their spouses are not only cheating on them, but are cheating on them with each other. The betrayal binds them together, and as the two coolest and most beautiful people ever to walk the earth, they wind up falling in love. But they resolve to honor their vows and not do what their spouses did to them, however painful the consequences. Moonlight and In the Mood for Love are movies built around my favorite theme, unrequited love. They're both sensitive to the pressure outside forces can exert over a relationship, from nosy landlords given to all-night mahjong sessions to hyper-masculine packs of teenage boys. Why are films about relationships that don't happen so romantic? 
And what are Wong Kar Wai and Barry Jenkins saying about a time and place where these feelings can flourish only to be snuffed out by circumstance? We'll throw a coin in the jukebox, call up an old standard, and let the sparks fly. Siempre que te pregunto que cuando, como y donde tú siempre me respondes quizás, quizás, quizás Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A few weeks ago, we talked about the HBO version of Westworld, a show about an Old West theme park that doubles as an allegory for what makes us human. The Android hosts in Westworld all operate under a set of expected behaviors and canned storylines called loops, and when they start to break down and wander off script, they're said to be, quote, out of their loops. Of course, we all operate within loops that we call routines, those repeatable patterns of behavior that bring order to our everyday lives. Our routines are helpful in bringing structure and predictability to our days, but they can act as a kind of prison, reinforcing a situation that doesn't necessarily make us happy. Wong Kar Wai's films are obsessed with repeated patterns of behavior. Certain images, gestures, and routines are emphasized as a way of letting us understand the contours of a character's life and how difficult it can be to break out of them. In the Mood for Love may be a lush portrait of early 60s Hong Kong, but it's remarkable how little we see of it and how consequential it is when we travel someplace new. Tony Lung and Maggie Chung's characters, Chao Mo Wan and Su Li Zhen, occupy neighboring apartments in a tightly constricted space where their actions are closely monitored by a nosy landlord. Mo Wan works as a journalist, Li Zhen works as a receptionist, and at night, when their spouses are almost always out of town, they head down to the noodle stand to retrieve their dinner. And it's there that Mo Wan and Li Zhen's loops overlap, and they get to know each other better, starting with the revelation that their spouses are having an affair together. In the Mood for Love was shot using Wong's usual improvisatory approach, which gives it these beautiful liberated flashes of style and movement. But the film is built on repeated motifs, the trips up and down the stairs to the noodle shop, the recurrence of the same lovely score by Shigeru Umabayashi, and the series of Cheongsam dresses worn by Maggie Chung, which both mark the passing of time and symbolize the restrictions that govern her life. In the Mood for Love is elegant, impeccably performed, and heartbreaking when it needs to be, but its true romantic tension comes from the distance between Mo Wan and Li Zhen's desires and the loops they cannot will themselves to break. All right, gang. Easy question to start. What did you think of In Mood for Love? I mean, this thing's been floating around since uh, the year 2000. Uh, it's probably my favorite of his movies. I'll t- tip my hat as far as that is concerned. But I- I'm curious to survey the room. Uh, Tasha, what do you think? I mean, 
I've always felt a little aware of the fact that I don't love this film the way you do, but few people on the planet love this film the way you do. <laughs> I mean, you you are beyond a super fan of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never connected for me emotionally in the same way. And I, I recognize that I'm an outlier in that case. And it's a little frustrating for me because it's so technically rigorous. It's so beautifully shot. The music is so evocative. The people are so beautiful. But it just reminds me a lot of some of the things that Godard was doing in the 1960s, where you have beautiful people sort of lounging around and posturing in these ways that evoke their ennui, that evoke their detachment from the world. And this film, for me, still feels very detached from the world. You have all of these different phases of their their life and their relationship where it seems like it evolves what exactly is keeping them apart and where they are mentally and how they don't connect. But the, the different phases for me don't entirely connect. The whole film for me is like an impeccably crafted, beautiful portrait that doesn't have nearly as much feeling in it for me as it does for you. Uh, yeah, that, that's for sure. <laughs> that 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 it doesn't have as much feeling as for me. That, that, the emotional detachment part is something I find curious because I, I find, again, that the mix of Wong Kar Wai's style, which is improvisatory and impassioned and active to go along with, I think, you know, which is a very emotional story. But I'm already gobbling up time. I'm going to give it. I'm going to throw this to Keith. Mm, Keith, what yeah, do you I, think? I, I love it. I mean, we, we had to do that poll recently where we submitted it to our best films of the century so far. And it was really like this and one or two other films that I knew were locks for it. I mean, it's really giving me everything I want in a movie. It, it carries you along like a piece of music. I, I'm, I'm deeply emotionally involved in these characters. I, I find it incredibly moving and um, heartbreaking and, and romantic at the same time. And, uh, makes me want to walk around Hong Kong in 1962. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's just such a, such a richly realized world. I, I feel like I can smell the noodles. Uh, I'm, I'm very pro in the mood for love. Uh, uh, Genevieve, what about you? I mean, I find it romantic in like the classic sense of the word, while not necessarily being incredibly invested in the central romance. I don't want to say even not invested, but it's a very understated, uh, reserved type of emotion that we see between these characters. And that is enticing to a certain degree, but to me, it was not as enticing as kind of what you mentioned, Keith, the the world, this world of music and color and beautiful dresses and the- Rice cookers. I, yes. I'm hugging my rice cooker right now. And cigarettes. <laughs> my God. It's smoking has rarely yeah. looked this right? beautiful. Uh, and smoking tends to look beautiful on film when it's shot. It right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think about this as a romantic movie, like the way I think of like the romantic era of art um, more than a romance between two characters. But I, I mean, I definitely see the emotion you're talking about there. And I think it's definitely one that would reveal itself to me on more viewings. Mm-hmm. I watched this movie twice because the first time I watched it was election night. And that uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, oh, no. so that I, I was like, I definitely need to go back to that. And so much more revealed itself to me, especially in the lead up to the revelation that their spouses were mm-hmm. uh, having an affair and just the the way that is planted in so many ways, stylistically. It felt like a much richer movie going back and watching it a second time. And I, I can see it being the type of movie where it would continue to get richer. Yeah. I mean, I just, it crushes me. I've seen it probably seven or eight times. And it, it really, it, it picks its spots, I guess. But those spots, and the spots for me are the moments when they're rehearsing or they're playing out scenes mm-hmm. where she is practicing confronting her husband about the affair or, you know, most devastatingly, the scene where the two of them have to 
figure out how to say goodbye to each other and, and, and how hard it is on both of them to, to do that. Um, so it picks its spots. And it also just, as you said, you're talking about it planting the seeds. I mean, it really does an interesting job. I mean, it does it in a practical sense, setting up the fact that this knowledge that they learn about each other, that, that their spouses are cheating on each other with each, with each other. You, you get the stuff about the purses and like, and, uh, and where did you get that handbag? And I, I mean, all of that is kind of as well established, but there are other ways. I mean, I, especially particularly in the music, um, that kind of sets this emotional context. And then you, once that's set, when it repeats itself, the, the score throughout the film or, or you get some piece of music that, that, that you hear again and again and again. I think that just the emotion, emotional resonance of that just deepens and deepens and deepens. And the other thing about it too is just on a filmic level, it is just stunningly beautiful at every moment. And you, you just, you watch and you're like, this, this is an absolute master at work. This is someone who, who is just on a level beyond what even a great filmmaker can do. It's just, he just has an eye uh, for beauty. And that, and that, that's both speaking to him and his cinematographers, Christopher Doyle and Mark Lee Ping Bin, who are, who have done extraordinary work elsewhere. But it, I just, I just, think, I just think the artist, the level of artistry here, I mean, even like the rain, like he can film rain in a way that, You've, I mean, you've never seen rain look like that on, on film before. It's almost insane to consider how much it's made up on the fly <laughs> when he makes his movies, too. Yeah. I mean, just for a while there was, and I don't think he's made a, a bad movie that I've seen. Some I like better than others, but there, it was one happy accident after another, movie after movie. Of course, all kind of torturously shot over over months and even years sometimes, but mm-hmm. uh, the result is wonderful. I'm going to uh, reveal a little ignorance on my part here. I did not know that he was known for shooting in an Im- improvisatory style. Mm-hmm. Um, so hearing you say that, and the keynote was a little shocking because there are so many shots in this movie that seem so carefully and artfully composed. And, and I mean, they are artfully composed, but the idea of that not being planned out far in advance is, is can, can you explain a little more of what, what his well, approach I think, is? I think there's a lot of just, I, I'm not sure precisely how he does it, but I think it is a matter of just trying to be spontaneous and in, in trying to develop the movie on the day and with, with the cinematographer and with the actors and trying a lot of different things and then kind of getting where... So is it more like in the performance you're talking about? Because I mean, like this is no, a pure... No, it's it's the, the just often structure. there's scripts that are written as sort of that are more outlines to, to ensure investors that there is a plan for yeah. this. Yeah. Um, often the final film is, is quite different. He's known for editing films like up to the moment they premiere at, at Cannes I, and, I, and, I in the past. That, and, yes. uh, Doyle, who was one of the cinematographers on here, is, is somewhat famous for uh, uh, drinking on the set uh, while, <laughs> yeah. while shooting yeah. films. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, finding the film uh, in, the, in the moment. Uh, well, he did he's movie. also known for having walked away from this film because it took so long because right. there were so, so many retakes and there was so much experimentation and, and it didn't re- end up fitting the schedule that he wanted to fit with and he, he got very frustrated with it which is why it has two cinematographers. And there's uh, also, you know, on the Blu-ray and DVD, there's a whole another act to the film that was cut entirely. If you want to see Tony Lung in, in, a, in a very uh, 70s mustache, uh, that, uh, <laughs> watch that. It, it's, I actually wouldn't recommend it. It's all outside the scope of the story here and kind of changes the story a little bit. So it I, might be best not to delve in. Yeah, I think the ending is pretty perfect. As the ending is, is perfect, well, yes. And he carries it over. I mean, the, the, the movie 2046 is mm-hmm. a quasi-sequel. I mean, uh, that's the name of that's the room that, that he stays in in the, in the movie. And, and so he made 2046 out of that. And the, I, the I movie, like that movie a lot too, but that's also one where you can see the loose ends are a lot more apparent a little loose that. and then fallen angels was supposed to be part of chunking express mm-hmm. and then became its own 
movie. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Um, so so he has, I, I think, a little bit of a wild ride. Um, but but I think you know, and that's really where the performances come in to to bring it that emotional coherence anyway, and and freshness. You know, if there are a lot of repeated scenes and repeated efforts, I mean, you're, you're still getting great stuff from his actors. Uh, Maggie, Maggie Chung in this is, I don't know if acting gets any <laughs> bit better than, than that. Um, Those two are so good. So what do you see, to get get into the details here, you know, what do you see as the forces keeping these two apart? I mean, I talked about patterns of behavior, but there are questions of morality at play here too. And there are also expectations impressed upon them by outside forces. So uh, what's why can't these two lovebirds get together? For me, it's the film, and at least I don't want to boil it down to simplify it too much, but it's about how people who are being good gets in the way of being happy and following the rules and, and, and these patterns you talk about, their habits and their routines, but they're also give structures to lives and, and it gives them a, a kind of a moral pattern to follow. I mean, there's there's no starker contrast between how people live their lives between Moan and Ping, who's, you know, just completely undisciplined and, and debauched and hilarious and, and, and drunk and, and very charming in his own way, but just the way he dresses versus the way Moan dresses, uh, you know, so put together it reflects who he is on the inside as well. I really don't understand. I, I mean, I've read a lot about this film and so many people seem to take it as as read that both participants decide that they can't sleep together because of their spouses and because of their morality. And I just don't see that playing out in the performances. I, Moan asks her back to his room and she turns him down. Yeah. He tries to hold her hand in the in the cab and she turns him down. It seems like he initiates the let's play act you confronting your husband about this. And then he calls her out for not having a stronger emotional reaction, for not hitting him hard enough. He calls her out towards the end of the film for refusing to leave her husband, he seems to me at every beat to be trying to push this into a physical relationship. And he respects the fact that she keeps saying no. But I don't think it's an even thing on both of their parts that keeps them apart from each other. I mean, their circumstances are different. It's not entirely clear, at least it wasn't to me, what happened to Moan's wife after she went to Japan. It kind of seems like she left him. There's some mention of him not being able to take the gossip, which could be about one of several things. But then he uh, stops living there as well. Yeah. he. I don't know if he stops living there, but he takes to the hotel. Mm-hmm. But Li Zhen, I mean, for one thing, she is a woman and it's different being a wife to a philandering husband than being a husband to a philandering wife, especially in 1960s Hong Kong. I'm assuming I don't know a whole lot about. The, Although, the... I mean, Moan's wife seems to deal with it, however she deals with it. And there's that implication of gossip, but we, I mean, we certainly don't get, like even the nosy landlord doesn't seem to have anything to say about the two of them, about the two spouses who are having an affair. But I, I think there's also a very interesting touch in the fact that Li Zhen is, at least at the beginning of the movie, kind of helping orchestrate her boss's affair mm-hmm. and managing the calls to the the wife and the mistress and having her husband buy two presents for them. Like, I, I think she's coming at it from a different angle in terms of what it would look like to someone else to have an affair. I just question how much of it is societal pressure and how much of it is just her. I get the impression from the way her emotions spill out in in moments where she confronts things and, and breaks down and keeps saying, I didn't think it would hit me this hard, that she's kind of afraid of emotion, that she's kind of afraid of these overwhelming, overpowering things that live inside of her and she won't give in to them. And we see her at several points 
points start to like running after him and, but it's too late because she wouldn't let herself get in traveling to Singapore and not confronting him calling him and not talking to him I think she's the one that's holding her back and it may be because she's worried about what people will say but I think she just can't let herself give into it she is a very reserved person and, and we see that even before they start really talking to each other like not wanting to interact that much with the other people in the uh, unit where she lives and you know kind of keeping to herself and it may just be that she is that kind of person she's just a, a much more reserved person her her dresses would certainly uh, yeah. her, her tight constricting dresses would certainly back up that uh, character detail uh, just the the prospect of trying to get one of those off for a tour affair is uh it just seems considerable. I don't even know how she gets into them in the first place. It's like they're part of her skin. But this is – Scott's going to hate this. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> but one of the things keeping them apart is editing uh, because Wong Kar Wai originally shot an opening scene where the two of them are in a hotel together having sex. Oh, right, right. And he decided he felt that it just didn't work. He said he, he didn't want to see it. But because the characters had had contact with each other, because the actors had played out the scene, they always played the rest of the film as though they had had that physical contact. Mm. And he wanted that feeling of did they, didn't they, have they, haven't they, to actually to hang over the film. I, I don't think it's inherent to the film that they have not had physical contact. It becomes that way because of what you see, what we actually get in the editing, but it was not inherent to the script. And I find that just really kind of fascinating. So it sounds like a lot of information that's just right outside of what we uh, see in the frame, Tasha. What do we like to call that, Scott? Well, extra textual material. I think with a movie that's this elusive and this subtle extra textuals like sometimes i don't want to know yeah. um in cases like this i find it just fascinating it's fascinating i mean they, there's a charge there i mean the chemistry between the two of them is uh, you know i don't know how and if it suggests that they've had any kind of intimacy together but there's a charge between them that, i mean again they're the two most beautiful people i've ever seen so <laughs> so so why not um but i i do want to kind of go back to this question of societal pressure because because the, the the fact is they are sort of tiptoeing around this watchful you know landlady and that, that has to mean something i mean they have to, i mean I, I don't know what societal norms were in early 60s of hong kong but there has to be some pressure there too right i mean they can't they can't be open Does about there, though i mean there's there is the fact that their spouses are carrying on this affair and nobody but them seems to really notice like nobody comments yeah. on it their their spouses are ghosts I mean, they're 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 not on screen. You hear their voices from time to time. You hear all of these stories about them. You have you see the effects that they have, both emotionally and just in all of these little ways. Mm-hmm. I love the scene where they awkwardly try to connect for the first time at the diner over. You have a great purse. Where did you get that purse? Maybe I could buy that purse. No, my husband bought me that. You have a great tie. Oh, my wife bought me that. And they just have this awkward moment of we cannot connect in even the most shallow and obvious of ways without our spouses getting involved. Well, those involved. are pointed oh. questions, though. Those are when, that's when they find out about each other, right? The, they're feeling each other. Yeah. How much, feeling how each how other. It's more like I know something. I know you know something. Yeah. What do you know? That's what that but is. I mean, it's, I, not, it's not an attempt to kind of make conversation. It's it's They're digging for specific pieces of information. I'll bring it back to my original point where the degree to which 
one is more interested in a physical relationship than the other, or one is more open to it than the other may, may vary. But these are people who, if their spouses don't care about violating morality and their spouses don't care about what other people think, they do. And that's, I think that informs a lot of their behavior. Yeah, they're old-fashioned in a way. Yeah. Like I, I remember one of my other favorite movies, The Age of Innocence, is the same sort of situation where it, it, it ends with Daniel Day-Lewis refusing to to go up to see Michelle Pfeiffer, who is who is the woman he he, he loves, but who is who he opted not to leave his wife for, and uh, and that those are the words he tells his son to tell her to tell her that he, he's old fashioned, and so there's some of that plays here. There's just it's important, certainly to her, to toe the line, even though her spouse is not. Well, in in the first uh, time we see them reenacting that first night, like how it might have happened. Moan is able to reenact the critical moment where mm-hmm. he reaches out to touch her or, or basically where he makes a move. And then they kind of go back and redo it with her making the move. And she's like, I can't do it. Like she can't even imagine herself doing that. She can't even do it for the sake of this little game they're playing or trying to figure it out for themselves. And I think that just speaks to an aspect of her character that does impact their relationship in the end. So let's talk about the locale. You know, how, how does Wong evoke the period? And, you know, were there any stylistic touches that you found particularly striking? Have I mentioned the dresses? The dresses. <laughs> Incredible, Oh, right? my God, the dresses. <laughs> I, was, I was telling Tasha on Instant Message earlier, like, watching this movie made me crave for a deep wardrobe analysis like TomandLorenzo.com used to do for Mad Men every week, just, like, going into the colors and how wardrobes are speaking to each other and what the flowers on her dress mean in any given time. Mm-hmm. Like, the, it, that may not actually be there, but it was so in your face that it made me really want to go back and analyze her dresses. I wanted the Matthew Desim like uh, textual <laughs> breakdown, yeah. just like the really close read of like, oh, like she's the wearing symbolism. blue flowers now. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. I know. No, I, I had the same uh, the same impression. Just this, I like this endless parade of of fabrics and all in like roughly the same physical style, which is so mod and. Mm. I, it's just that it's so neck. flattering yeah. and yet at the same time so like almost alien mm-hmm. uh, the costuming is fantastic well and, I, and also um as i think i mentioned in the keynote it's crucial to know the passing of time mm-hmm. uh because it, because you know the, the, he'll cut you know you'll get her in like four different dresses within 30 seconds yeah. <laughs> um and so so you know things are moving forward um, which is cl- which is again a very clever way to do it. <laughs> There's also just something about the the bouffant hairstyle that she so often wears. I didn't really think about it early on, except you know the degree to which it must be difficult to maintain that, given how often these characters end up out in the rain. Um, mm-hmm. But it you know it's very much of the time period. And yet there's a shot late in the film where the camera just creeps up really close on her a little from underneath. And you can see just like how high and how almost plasticine that hair is. And you can see the curve of her actual head underneath. And all of a sudden it starts to feel performative. The fact that she has this hair, it starts to feel like she's a porcupine. She's trying to make herself larger and more decorated than she is. Like she's trying to keep the world at bay with like foot high hair and it suddenly it starts it stops seeming like a style and it starts seeming like a helmet in a really weird way i have no idea if that was intended it just really struck me yeah Yeah. Yeah. i think the way she looks kind of speaks to what we were talking about with her character um she is a very 
put together person and is always clearly very cognizant of the image she is projecting through her clothing and through her hair and through her shoes that when she comes in uh, and like t- collapses and takes her shoe off that's hurting her you know like this is a woman who is concerned with appearances mm-hmm. and I think that it's not hard to draw a line between that and her relationship with Lola. Oh, when the landlady is just like she dresses like that to go get noodles yeah, yeah right, exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, her, her, her lifestyle would seem to dictate that she would be wearing whatever the 60s Hong Kong equivalent of sweats. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, especially the fact that she lives on noodles. How does she maintain that waste on an all noodle diet? I think step one for doing that and and looking that good in that dress is be Maggie Chung. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and also spend a lot of time navigating very narrow hallways and stairs, which is another style <laughs> thing we can talk about. Is just the 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 way this environment is set up for them to constantly be bumping into each other and rubbing against each other in you know in narrow doorways. It's and it does uh, also contribute to that sense that there's always people watching them. You know, there's the only escape they have is into small rooms, either their small bedroom within this larger apartment or a hotel room. You know, and we're going to talk more about framing in the second half because it's so relevant to Moonlight as well. But there's just there's a degree to which those spaces are created in order to frame the two of them. God. Uh, this is bizarre. I don't I don't get that emotional like watching the two of them just like stand there not looking at each other. I get emotional talking about the the way some of the physical choreography works and I'm actually <laughs> like my throat is closing a little bit trying to describe this, is, this shot. We, we got it going on. Yeah, just in a different way. There's a shot where she is on the extreme right of the screen and there's just a sense of the, the space where there is nobody feels naked in just such a, a an achingly raw way and he comes up out of the background and fills that space and it just feels like such an incredible completion it's like you knew something was missing mm-hmm. and then Wong Kar Wai fills it in for you oh, although no, I think getting choked up <laughs> Although I think the most striking shot in the film for me is one of those narrow spaces down a long hallway with nobody in it. The one where the red curtain is just Mm, sort of billowing and the green plant is in the foreground. I mean, I haven't seen anybody use foregrounded objects like this since Hitchcock. It's just Mm -hmm. there's so much of it in the film where the characters will be in the background and there'll be a wall or a rock or a plant or a curtain or something in the extreme foreground. Or rice. <laughs> I, I love it, the the scenes toward the very end where they're like back to back against their respective the walls in their respective apartments, and Moan is hugging the rice cooker, which is <laughs> maybe my favorite image. But then you can see her rice cooker in the background of of her shot too. You know, it's like the they're connected by their rice cooker. <laughs> talk about Hong Kong a little bit too, right? I mean, and just- yeah, I mean, it's something I mentioned in, in the, again in the keynote is how we he deliberately narrows our view of it. We get a sense of them uh, of the patterns, the routines by which they conduct their lives. So we only get get it in bits and pieces. But when we do land on certain locations, it becomes more more meaningful than it would be if the film was a little bit more wide open than it is. Well, again, I'm not to be all extra textual on you, but <laughs> they had a really hard time finding parts of Hong Kong that could pass for 60s Hong Kong. Uh. And it was so... So much, so much of this film is about Wong Kar Wai's memory and uh-huh. his his very specific sense of place, and they couldn't find places. He didn't want to shoot on sound stages. He didn't want to create these places, but he couldn't find them. And that's one of the reasons so much of this film is confined to interiors. And then when they get out into the world, it's uh, let's go to Singapore, like let's go to Cambodia. 
But what you do see, I mean, the, just the small space, the small part of the city that they walk through, it's so vividly realized, but also seems a little dreamlike. It seems like, like you said, it's it's like Hong Kong as he remembers from his childhood, too. And this but is, some of that is Singapore. Well, yes. But <laughs> what for the purpose of the film, it's Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. This was the, the Hong Kong that, that he grew up in, not having, having been born in mainland China, not speaking the language, not speaking the dialect. So it feels a little, I mean, the fact that there's a an American singer singing a Spanish uh, language song, which was a hit in Hong Kong at the time, but that's as the one of the dominant songs, <laughs> feels very right. In many in many ways, it's just, just these de- degrees of dislocation and, and disorientation. Yet it's this really vivid uh, depiction of the city. It's part part of for me. It's part of why I love the, the film so much. So, can can someone explain to me? Because maybe this is something you researched as well. Tasha. <laughs> uh, what's the, the what's the deal with the footage of Charles de Gaulle visiting Cambodia? It, I was going to ask that too. Like <laughs> I, I, I I've seen the film many times, and I'm like I don't know what that is. I don't know. It didn't come up in anything I read yeah. about it. The one guess that I have is that it's Wong trying to put the relationship in a larger context. But I'm not, I'm not sure what that context I, I think it's also a sign of, of changing times. What de Gaulle was doing there was expressing his disapproval of the Vietnam War. And so you kind of see the early 60s and sort of this this, this romantic vision of, of that tilting over into the later 60s, which gets mentioned uh, later in the film about how things are changing in Hong Kong. I, are there explicit references to protest? I can't remember. But there's certainly this this sense of, of unrest setting in. And the, the Hong Kong of the earlier film is giving giving way to right. a different sort That of world is gone. Is that the yeah, I mean, that's, that's, well, that's the epilogue. The, yeah, the, in that scene when uh, Li Zhen goes back to visit her old landlady, she does make some comment about it being, I don't know if she necessarily says dangerous, but there there is definitely uh, some dialogue indicating that Hong Kong is a definitely a less desirable place to be right now. That and, shot might have also just been meant to signify Cambodia. I mean, it might have been a historical moment, you know, in the same way. Uh, establishing shots of New York are like, okay, here's the Chrysler building. It might have just been like to alert us to the the passage of space when he was already alerting us to the passage of time. I should note that that shot of him whispering into the hole and then filling it with dirt, that, that, that is, uh, that's a subtweet. <laughs> whenever I, whenever I, whenever I, there have been a, a couple of times when that has been, that, that image has been a subtweet for me. Uh, just like, I'm just going to put that thought in that little <laughs> hole and then that's going to be where it remains. I mean, that conversation that he has with a coworker where he, he brings up that legend, it's the kind of thing that you know is going to have a payoff. You mm-hmm. know, you don't have a story like that in a film without the conscious knowledge that it, it's going to come back somehow. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's even when it's set up, even just in description, it's just so clear that that's going to be a powerful image. It just, when it it, yeah, yeah. It, that, that's the final, that's the death blow for, for me. That what is it? What's that video game where they just they rip out your uh, finish inside? Mortal, yeah, Mortal the, Kombat. Mortal Kombat. That's, that's the finishing move for me. There's a lot of like moments in the film that, that are very affecting, but uh, but that's that's the end of it for me. Just like that. That's where the, this whole thing goes, and it's such a such a lonely moment and such a beautiful moment. Whew too much for me it's when he stops in front of the door and then doesn't knock it's like dude you already bothered one neighbor just knock on the door (laughs) (laughs) old-fashioned you know Uh, i guess so is he old-fashioned or is it just all about creating see here's here's the thing yeah wong kar wai has has talked about this movie as not being about love 
but being about the mood for love and how this environment, the music and the time and the beauty mm. and the space of Hong Kong all create this mood that is meant to be the mood for love. And yet that his two characters can't quite seal the deal for all of the <laughs> yeah. various reasons that they have. They have they've been placed in the perfect environment for love and they've been given the mood for love they just can't quite get there yeah and they have so much in common too they like martial arts cereals and movies and the <laughs> and noodles from the new from the stand downstairs yeah, 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 sesame syrup and again and again the, the two most beautiful people you've ever seen like, like they belong together and this is the city um that should allow it but it doesn't happen which is crushing and beautiful. I mean, would it be better in any way if they got together? I mean, you you make it sound like no, it's... I, no. That's the uh, that's another point I wanted to make too. Is that I I think there is something more romantic about films where things don't happen, where where there's no happily there's no happily ever after, where where just you, you have this tension that exists and it is very powerful, but it just it does not quite materialize. That to me is. That's as good as it gets. It's almost like you let off by saying that one of your favorite tropes was unrequited love. Yep, that's right. Uh, and with that, we'll be back with some listener feedback on our last episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now it's time for feedback. Our last episode on My Own Private Idaho and American Honey was among our more contentious, but it drew a couple of thoughtful responses to Andrea Arnold's sprawling road movie about young people selling magazines in middle America. The first one is quite long, but it speaks well to the personal reaction people have had to American Honey. People like Genevieve Kosky. Genevieve, do you want to read this one? Sure. Jesse writes, Genevieve jokingly implied that part of her love for American Honey came from her life experience as a teenage girl, while Tasha told the story of how her viewing of the film informed a previous encounter with a kid who scammed her during a magazine sale. Like Tasha, I bought two ridiculously overpriced magazine subscriptions a couple of years ago after talking with a young man who came to my door. I have no way of knowing whether or not he was telling the truth about his backstory, but my heart went out to him and I bought something that I didn't want or need, or receive to this day, in an effort to help him out. In retrospect, I'm fairly sure that he was part of a magazine crew, and further reading on magazine crews seems to support my suspicions. One of the main reasons I sympathized with this young man, however, was from another life experience I had, canvassing the Wisconsin Public Interest Research Group while living in Madison, Wisconsin. Like many of the kids in American Honey, I was a bit lost at the time. I had recently been pushed out of college due to poor academic performance, and I was dead broke and struggling to find work. When I fell into going door-to-door -door in various neighborhoods in Wisconsin, I spent long days with other canvassers who were all around my age. We would train for a while and then go out and solicit and end the night partying. What struck me in American Honey was the portrayal of the ragtag crew of kids in the sense of camaraderie, which is very similar to what I experienced during my short time as a canvasser. My entire social life revolved around those people, and after I was unceremoniously let go, I never saw any of them again. As a result of these memories, I was so sucked into the movie that I glossed over any heavy-handedness. I was aware of some of it, but it didn't ruin the experience of the film for me. I wasn't aware of the concept of magazine crews at the time, or for many years after, but I think the parallels apply. Perhaps things have changed in the 15 years since I've done this sort of work, but I somehow doubt it. 
so authentic is what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect there's a lot of people with similar situations from kind of their early adult, late adolescence, early adulthood, where you find yourself in a group of like-minded people with little in the way of responsibility and mm -hmm. um, you you bond in a very intense way that doesn't necessarily last through the rest of your life. But Yeah, and it can kind of go either way, too. I mean, if you're spending your days and nights with the same group of people, that can either bring you closer together or uh, uh, or the opposite of that if if the chemistry is not is not there. But that is the nature of the job, that you're all together on the road. Um, and I think it's just an, another interesting way in which we see that what you get out of film does is heavily influenced by what you bring into it. And it's kind of remarkable that we can sit down and talk about all of these movies uh, and come anywhere close to the same responses with each other, given how different we are going in. See, I, I thought she, was, she wouldn't like the movie because she's still pissed off she didn't get her magazines. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't get my magazines either. You don't see me complaining about it unless you go back and listen to that podcast where I kind of complain about it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so also on the American Honey front, we had another listener who didn't see the movie, but based on our description, connected it with another film we talked about on the show earlier this year. Keith, can you read this? Certainly. JP writes, sometimes pop culture is interesting out of context. Without having seen or been remotely exposed to American Honey, I was listening to your discussion and it hit me. These themes and details make American Honey sound like a bizarre world companion piece to Green Room. A few stray observations on both films. One, young, lower-class, present-day rural Americans know the lyrics to a Dick <laughs> Kennedy song. True. Two, uh, the protagonists live under a perpetual threat of violence, entering potentially perilous situations to make money. Three, both films explore the other America, as does my own private Idaho. Four, Green Room begins as a road movie. It's not my intent to be glib or facetious. I honestly find myself wondering the origin story of Amber, Imogen Poots from Green Room, and whether she and Star found refuge among different crowds to escape similar troubles. On a lighter note, which Dead Kennedy song do you prefer? Nazi punks F off or I kill children? You'd have to ask uh, some small child in Oklahoma <laughs> for the answer to that question. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, I, I confess I am not familiar with the oeuvre of the dead Kennedys. <laughs> you really, you don't, you don't have to, Tasha. <laughs> I'll, I'll free you it's from... All, it's all there in the song titles, basically. Yeah, but, pretty but, much but is. But I, I think my sentiments for Nazi punks F off are pretty aligned with those. Like, Nazi punks can go F That's off. That's true. Yeah, you know, I'm, it's, I'm it's, fine with those, those Nazi punks effing off. Not to get, not to get political, but, but I've seen Green Room Surfers a lot lately i'm kind of interesting to see it come up now but like and that movie went from being this what an interesting peek into this grimy subculture <laughs> just below the surface of our culture that that most of us will never encounter to holy s <laughs> it's like yeah it's, it's like, like they it's live like, among hey, us hey no it's like hey we're all trapped by white supremacists yes, now yes yes <laughs> in a grimy basement how, with our how, arms do we, how, open. how do we get out yeah so the green room does have a special residence, and it really was. It did, did feel like an yeah. alien experience until uh, now. Yeah. And yeah. now it is uh, the horror that we are going to be living in for four years. So, so, so which is not way to of tip saying. our hand or anything. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, we didn't vote for Trump. If that, <laughs> yeah, sorry. If you, Trump, Trump voters. if you haven't seen Green Room, maybe watch Green Room. You might you might need to see Green Room. And apparently, it's part of the American Honey Extended Cinematic Universe. Yes. So. 
<laughs> I, I mean, I do take JP's point. Like, uh, the Imogen Poots character does seem like this is the place where she could have washed up after crawling out mm-hmm. of a pond uh, where she freed a turtle <laughs> because her magazine crew dumped her by the side of the road. I and mean, she does have that same sort of, like, she's she's definitely seen some ass. And she's, <laughs> can we just keep that? I just really enjoy that. Um, but she does, she does have that same vulnerability, that same combination of, like, vulnerability and toughness of self-awareness of familiarity with the scene and yet kind of an aimlessness like she she does feel like a similar character in a lot of ways i'm just now wondering what movie what movie do they fight ultron (laughs) well it depends on joss whedon's availability i don't think they've shot that one yet all right, gang. Uh, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in Moonlight, another story about repressed passion with a similar romantic swoon and a taste for old jukebox music. What could couples of different sexual orientation with over half a century and half a world's distance apart have in common? You'll find out. You'll also get to hear this. The fact that the third act kind of feels like a Wong Kar Wai movie mm-hmm. just kind of put it back in the realm of something I'd, I'd seen before in my life. Yeah, I, I just watched Scott's Tasha, face why, fall why? when you said <laughs> no, I, was a, I was like, Tasha, why, why do we have to be at odds on a movie we both really like? Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash Show. And follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, spend the next couple of days going to your local noodle shop repeatedly like the sad, beautiful people you are. <laughs> <laughs>